Our, our goal this morning is to be fully done with this part by 11 o'clock. So if it doesn't happen, somebody come tackle me. It'll be fine. So I've now been walking with the Lord for just over 20 years. Uh, it was 2003, or 2001, I was 23. Uh, so this September it'll be 21 years. And uh, I, and, oh, thank you, yeah, yeah. It's worthy, worthy of clapping, yeah. Um, I, there are in some ways where I thought I'd be much farther along. Uh, I, I'm amazed how faithful Christ has been to me. I mean, he's such a good shepherd through the good times, the bad times, the fun times, the very sad times. He's proven himself over and over and over again that he's trustworthy. I can really, truly bank on his promises to be there for me. And yet, I find myself to be a very fickle man. I mean, all, all it takes is for my safety, personal safety, or the safety of my family, whether it's an actual something threatening it or something in my imagination, in my faith, it dwindles. And I become this anxious ball. Could be because I got a plane ride coming on, uh, coming up. If you want to see how weak my faith is, talk to me about a week before I'm leaving on a trip, and uh, you'll see a very weak man. I'm always thinking I'm about to die in the plane and such, or a doctor's appointment that I have coming up, or whatever it is. When, when the safety of my family feels threatened, my my faith is weak. Or uh, another one for me would be when I feel like my reputation is uh, threatened. So if there's criticism, or if, it's, if, it's, if I did fail in a certain way and I, I did something incorrectly and I feel like, oh, that's looking bad on me, I, suddenly I feel like I don't know how to pray, who am I, what, what do I do? Or one, one way that uh, my uh, lack of faith shows up is, is how much I, in our home, I love people, I love it when people are patient. I'm ten, I tend to be a very patient man with chaos in our home. What gets me really impatient is impatience. So when other people are impatient, I get impatient. Why can't you be like me and be patient? It's just totally backwards. But the, the thing is, is I can't simply trust God in that moment. I feel like my, my kingdom of the way I want patience in my world gets threatened, and I feel in total disarray. So I'm a man growing, uh, but still a man that struggles in faith. And we're, we're now entering into the Gideon cycle of judges, and especially this opening chapter. This is, this is good news for weak faith. If you are fickle in your faith at all, this, this is good news. It taps into a theme that we see throughout Scripture, but uh, I encourage you to just let your ear lean into God as he speaks this morning, allowing his, his truth to come forward as good news to us. Uh, Gideon is a very complex man. Uh, by, by the time you get to the end of his narrative, uh, you, you see just a mess of a man. And yet God delivers through weak and messy faith. And we'll see that over the course of these next three chapters and into his son uh, in the following chapter. But that this is the God we serve, who mercifully delivers through weak 
and messy faith. This morning, we're just going to cover the first chapter of, of his cycle, uh, chapter 6. Um, due to time, uh, I'm, really, I'm going to read it. I'll give a little bit of commentary uh, as we go, uh, but we'll read it in its entirety. I try to think of the story, be in the story. Uh, I want to encourage you to try, to try to pick out certain themes that you think the author is bringing to the forefront. Maybe that's through uh, repeating the same theme over and over through the uh, encounter, uh, or maybe it's just the way a certain the, a part of the story is told that a certain theme is meant to be uh, held up. So ask that question as we read it. Uh, is there a certain theme that's coming to the front uh, of the text? And we'll we'll go through those. So pay attention to the themes. But let's read it in its entirety, uh, starting again in uh, verse one, chapter six. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. The hand of Midian overpowered Israel. Because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains, in the caves, and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of East they would come up against Israel, and they would encamp against Israel, and they would devour the produce of Israel's land as far as Gaza, and they would leave no substance in Israel, and no sheep, no ox, no donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents, and they would come up like, like locusts in number, both they and their camels. They could not be counted so that they laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. The people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. So this, this uh, encounter starts out very much like we've already seen in the cycles. Uh, we see 6-1 there, that, that common phrase we've been watching throughout the book as each judged narrative starts. The, the people did evil in the sight of the Lord, this continual refrain. But what's a little bit unique here is how, how much ink he spells, uh, spends to explain just what's happening. Most of the time he says they've done evil, he handed them over to these other kings, uh, and then they cried out and he raised up a judge. So a little bit different here, he just spends some time saying, look how bad this is. They couldn't even live in their land. They had to go live in the caves. They couldn't even eat the fruit that, they, that was growing in their land. That, that went to the other people. Again, this comes right out of Deuteronomy 28. And one other thing that he's about to do uh, throughout the last couple cycles, it's been they've cried out to the Lord and God raised up someone. Here, he's going to shift gears a little bit and insert something that may have happened anyways, but he wasn't telling us. He's first going to send in his word. So instead of sending a judge, he's going to first send a prophet. Because we should at least remember God's truth, telling someone the truth, the reality of what's going on and who they are and what's wrong, like what is blemishes of they around them, and com- being compassionate with people are not mutually exclusive, right? Uh, God sending in a judge and God sending in a prophet are not that they don't cancel each other out. It is God's compassion to send a prophet to these people that are under oppression, even to, to, to tell them, like, this is why this is happening. This is God's compassion. So verse 7, when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, thus says the Lord God of Israel, I 
led you up out of Egypt. And I brought you out of the house of slavery. And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you. And I drove them out before you and I gave you their land. And I said to you, I am Yahweh, your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. Now, the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth, that's a tree, at Aphra, which belonged to Joash the Abiezrite, while his son Gideon was beating out the wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, and he said to Gideon, Yahweh is with you, O mighty man of valor. Gideon said to the angel of the Lord, Please, sir, if Yahweh is with us, why has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now, Yahweh has forsaken us. He's given us into the hand of Midian. And Yahweh turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you. And Gideon said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the weakest, the least, in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as if they were one man. And Gideon said to him, Okay, if I have now found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it really is you speaking with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and I bring out my present and I set it before you. And the angel of the Lord said, I will stay till you return. So Gideon went into his house and he prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from an ephah of flour. The meat he put into a basket and the broth he put into a pot and he brought them to the angel of the Lord under that terebinth tree and he presented them to him. The angel of God said to Gideon, Take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them here on this rock and pour the broth over them. Get them nice and wet. And Gideon did so. And the angel of the Lord then reached out the tip of his staff that was in his hand and he touched the meat and he touched the unleavened cakes and fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Now, you, you, just, you just have to try to picture the scene here for a second, right? I mean, this guy shows up 
out of nowhere and Gideon goes and makes a meal after this man has told him that God's going to save Israel through Gideon, that he, God's going to be with him. So he brings out the food, puts it on the rock, and it doesn't say that fire was already going, so he just puts it on a rock, and suddenly fire appears from the rock, and all, all the food's gone. And then he looks up at the angel, and the angel's gone. I mean, what in the world would you do at that moment? That's terrifying. And of course, he is terrified. Terrified. That's exactly how he responds. Look at what he says in verse 22. He perceives that it was the angel of the Lord. He says, Alas, Lord God! Oh, for now I've seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But Yahweh says to him, Peace be to you. Gideon, do not fear. You shall not die. And so Gideon, um, then putting a stake in the ground, he, he builds an altar there to the Lord. And he calls the altar, Yahweh is peace. To this day, it still stands in Afra, which belongs to the Abiezrites. Now we move on to another scene, uh, which is a, a fitting scene, because uh, if God is going to rescue Israel, the, the, the land must be first rid of the false gods that they're worshiping. And so there's going to be a cleansing. Uh, so this first Gideon puts a stake in the ground by building an altar to the Lord uh, in this first scene, and then he's going to put a stake in the ground for the community of ridding the land of false worship. Verse 25, that night... Yahweh said to Gideon, Take your father's bull and the second bull, that's the one that's seven years old, and go and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the Asherah that is beside it. That would be this big wooden pole. And build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of the stronghold here with stones laid in due order. Then I want you to take the second bull, uh, the one that pulled down the altar, and I want you to offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. And so Gideon took ten men of his servants, and he did, as Yahweh had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. When the men of the town rose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was broken down, the Asherah beside it was cut down, and the second bull was offered on the altar that had been built. And the men said to one another, Who has done this thing? And after they searched and inquired, they said, It's Gideon! Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. Then the, the men of the town went to Joash you picture this mob now at Joash's door. Bring out your son that he may die, for he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. But Joash, calming the crowd, said to all who stood against him, Will you contend for Baal? Or will you save him? Whoever contends for Baal shall be put to death by morning. If Baal is a god, let him contend for himself, 
because it's his altar that has been broken down. Therefore, on that day, Gideon was called Jerubal, that is to say, let Baal contend against him because he broke down Baal's altar. Now, moving on to the next scene, all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east came together and they crossed the Jordan and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. So they've entered into Israel. But the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon and he sounded the trumpet. And the Abiezrites were called out to follow him. And he, he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh. And they, they too were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali. And they went up to meet him, or to meet them. And here's one of the most famous narratives of Gideon right here, verse 36. So all the Amalekites and the Midianites are gathered. Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, Behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone, and it is dry on all the ground, then I truly shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he rose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. Then... Presumably the next day, Gideon said to God, Let, let not your anger burn against me. Let, let me speak just, just once more. Please, let me just test once more with a fleece. Please, let it be dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night. And it was dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground there was dew. All right, that is the reading of God's word. So what are the, what are the themes, uh, if you were able to pick up any of them? I think there's three sort of major themes that are meant to be seen here. I just want to walk through those and then put them together. I think the first one that's probably the most obvious is Gideon's struggling faith. Right? His, it, it's... It's not that he doesn't have faith. His faith is actually seen, right? I mean, he, he actually does as the Lord told him, right? He tears down the altar. He goes and does that. Nonetheless, not exactly as God had told him to, but he did it. He actually did that which God asked. He also built that altar uh, right when uh, the angel of the Lord uh, disappears and God speaks to him and says, peace you and he built an all he puts a stake in the ground so Gideon Gideon is a man of faith he also as the Midianites gather if you remember he blew the trumpets that's the that's the war cry he's calling all the tribes together at least four tribes and he's saying come come it's now's the time we're going to go out for the Lord so he's a man of faith it's just a struggling faith right Throughout this, throughout this narrative you have three times in particular that, that Gideon is demanding a sign from God it's, it's an assurance. I want, I want to make sure what you say is true, actually is true, and so I want you to prove it to me, God. I want, I want to put God on the stand here. I want, to, I want to make sure he truly will be faithful. Now, seeing that and thinking about that, uh, we, I think we could all say it's understandable and yet nonsensical. Right? His struggling faith is it's understandable to us, but it's also nonsensical. 
I mean, it, it really is kind of foolish, right, to not trust the Lord as Gideon is here. I mean, it's one thing to not trust someone like me or someone like you, right? We're, we're humans. Even the most trustworthy human is not perfectly trustworthy because the reality is you can't control everything. You might make a perfectly good promise that you actually really are planning to do and you get a flat tire on the way, right? Or a natural disaster or you get sick or something happens out of your control that you cannot fulfill your promise. Or sometimes we're just selfish and we, we say, no, actually, no, I don't want to do that. Or maybe it's just your personal weakness. Oh, I really thought I was going to be able to do that, but I just can't fulfill it. I ran out of time. I was, I was intending to. And I just got caught up doing other stuff or my skill isn't strong enough or whatever it is. The most trustworthy people uh, are not, uh, in the end, 100% trustworthy because we're human. But here, uh, it, it's, it's sort of nonsensical to, to tell the Almighty God, the one who's created all things, by the word of his power, he up, upholds all things, the one who's eternal, and to tell him, well, I don't, I don't know if I can really trust your promise. Because the reality is, is we have pretty small views of God, don't we? We actually try to, we almost think of God as someone like us. And of course, when we do that, God is not going to seem very trustworthy. So we, we know that it's, it is nonsensical what, what Gideon is doing here. And yet, at the same time, we totally know it's understandable. Understandable uh, logically, because we'll, next week we'll see uh, just how many Midianites gathered. Uh, earlier in the chapter, we're told that they gather like locusts. They can't even be counted. In, in chapter eight or chapter seven, we're actually told that roughly 135,000 of them gathered. Now Midian, we'll see next week, when he gathered his army, he had 32,000 at one point. So 32,000 going up against 135,000. That's a major gap, right? And so just logically, it's like, okay, I get it. You're a major, major underdog. It makes sense that you're a little bit nervous. I get it. Um, but we also get it just experientially, because you and I are not any different from Gideon, right? I mean, I fear people. I, I fear people hurting me physically. I fear people having different opinions about me than I think they should have. There's that great book. Uh, I mean, actually, I shouldn't say great. A great title. I've never read the book, but by... <laughs> By Ed Welch, when people are big and God is small, and all sorts of things that we do or don't do when, when people are big in our minds and God is small, it will make you do things or not do th all sorts of crazy things. And that's what Gideon is. And we do the very same things. And I constantly want some kind of special message from God to make sure that going this way is right. Versus just simply saying, God's going to be with me. I can trust him. The way Paul says, whether I go this way or that way, it doesn't really matter. God's going to lead me in triumphal procession either way, and I can trust him. So it's very understandable to me that Gideon struggles in faith. That's the first theme. Second theme is the way God responds to that. This passage shows incredible mercy and patience from God. I mean, the first time it shows up is actually at the end of verse 10 after the prophet comes and says, hey, look, you're experiencing this because, remember, I brought you out of Egypt, I delivered you, I did this, I did that, I did this, I did that. And how does verse 10 end? 
and you have not obeyed. Now, it would be very appropriate and understandable for us to read at that point, therefore, you made this bed, you're going to sleep in it. Get yourself out of this mess. Right? That would be that, that would be still righteous of God. And yet God comes with mercy to the people, which we've seen throughout the book. But it's, this, it's especially this patience piece, the way God responds. I mean, the, to, the, when, when Gideon demands these signs from, uh, from God, I mean, you just have to think. If you have kids or if you could just picture yourself in this, let's say you're going to the fireworks and you, your child is nervous because of the crowds and the bangs and they're, they're scared and you say, don't worry, like, I'm, I'm going to be with you, I'm going to protect you, you're going to be safe. And the kid's nervous. I don't think, I don't know, I don't know. Okay, oh, okay. I, I, I put some toys on the ground. The bunny's in the middle and the Legos are on the outside. I'm going to leave the room. And if I come in and you take away that bunny and the Legos are still there, then I know I, I, know I can trust you. Right? And then, he just rever- and then they just reverse it. How would you feel as the parent at that moment? It's sort of offensive, isn't it? One, you don't trust me that, that I know what's best and I'm giving you a command and I'm in control. So you're questioning that. You're questioning my character. And then you're demanding that I, I have to prove it to you? And yet, we read that God actually does it. I mean, the first sign when Gideon tells the angel of the Lord, wait here uh, to prove it to me that you are who you say you are. I'm going to go get some food and I'm going to bring it back. He doesn't just go grab a, a, a bag of chips, tortillas, or tortilla chips, right? Or whatever. <laughs> he, he goes, and it says he goes and prepares a goat. And he goes and makes bread. That, that's a process. So what's the angel of the Lord sitting on? I mean, I guess they didn't have watches, but... I mean, for hours, sitting there, waiting. And God does it. Because he's got a bigger picture in store here. To, to wait patiently, helping this man of struggling faith to move forward. Now, this aspect actually is going to get very, it's going to be contrasted later in Gideon's narrative because at the end of the story, Gideon has no patience with others who struggle in faith. None whatsoever. In fact, he punishes them for vacillating. And it's perhaps, perhaps Gideon actually didn't hear the music of just how patient God is with him. And that's why. That's why he's got no patience for other people. Now, again, I think we are all the same. I mean, just how patient was God with you this past week? How often did you think of these conversations you have with other people in your brain? You want to say this to your boss. You want to say this to that person. That, or how sharp you were with someone. Or just your, the anxiety and distrust you have in the Lord. And how, how patient was God with you this week? And yet, how impatient are we with other people? May God allow us to hear the music 
of God being so patient with us. So that's the second major theme, Gideon's struggling faith. The first one then is God's merciful patience. I think the third one then is God's presence, which is actually the key ingredient in the passage, uh, the key ingredient for victory for Gideon and for Israel, as well as the key ingredient to cure the struggling faith. Notice in this dialogue, uh, it shows up several times here. When, when, in verse 12, when the angel of the Lord comes to Gideon, the Lord is with you. Gideon questions that. And then verse 14, he says, to, to go save Israel, do I not send you? And then, of course, he's like, I can't do that. And how does he respond in verse 16? But, Gideon, I will be with you. I am going to be the one with, that's with you. See, Gideon is very aware that he doesn't have the resources to go against Midian. The text is trying to tell us that's okay. In fact, next week, we're going to see that God actually likes it like that. That is for his glory that Gideon is weak. And he'll actually make him weaker than Gideon thinks. But here, it's just simply the key ingredients is God's presence going with Gideon is actually where victory is going to come. So I, I put all this together, and I, I would say it like this. Weak faith Gideon will bring victory because God is with him. Weak faith Gideon will bring victory because God is with him. And brothers and sisters, this is great news for those of weak faith. You see, it, it means that Gideon's victory is not going to be dependent on him having some great faith. Or the old way you might have heard it, that, that victory or deliverance or salvation or growth is not dependent on the substance of our faith, but on the object of our faith. Meaning it's not on how great our faith is, but who our faith is in. Quick illustration, right? Uh, it's getting warmer out. You go over to a, a lake and you see that there's ice on it. And uh, you wonder, is there enough thickness on the ice for me to go walk on the ice. Now, faith, faith is going to get you on the ice, right? If you have a lot of faith, you'll walk out on the ice without even thinking anything of it. If you have a little bit of faith that the ice is strong enough, you'll probably walk real gingerly or maybe even get on your knees and try to spread your body out. Faith gets you on the ice, but what actually holds you? It's not your faith. Your faith isn't keeping you above the water. It's the ice. It's the object of your faith that actually holds you. So whether you have small faith, big faith, that doesn't matter if whether, whether or not you're being held. It's the, faith, the, the ice that holds you. And so in this passage, it doesn't matter if Gideon's faith is big or small. God is the one with him. And God's the one that's going to win the victory, which is great news for those of weak faith. Because it means that our growing in salvation and deliverance is not dependent upon our faith and our having great faith. It means we don't have to be ashamed of our, our weak faith. We don't have to run from it. We don't have to hide from it. We don't, want to act like we, we don't have to act like we have it all together. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that we should not care about growing in faith. Like, that shouldn't be a good response. Like, well, fine, I don't have to have good, like, God calls us to grow in faith to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we also don't have to be ashamed of it. In fact, this then calls us into freedom. But this is, this is actually a theme that runs right through Scripture. This is what God tells to Isaac, that he will, I will be with you. He tells it to Jacob, that I will be with you. Remember Moses, when Moses is called to go to Egypt, 
I will be with you, Moses. Joshua, be strong and courageous because I will be with you. He tells it to Solomon. He tells it to the nation of Israel. He tells it to Jeremiah. He tells it to the Apostle Paul. And what does Jesus say when he says, Go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them all that I, to obey all that I command, them, uh, command you, and baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And lo, I am with you. I'm with you always. Or the way the author of Hebrews says it in the negative. Keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. Because God himself has said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Right? And in, in the original language, you actually have a double negative and a triple negative. To say, I will never, ever leave you. I will never, ever, ever forsake you. It's the theme that runs right through Scripture. That God wants to convince his people that when you're his, he's with you. He's with us in everything and everywhere we go. And that's great, great news. The sad part is, is I only got three minutes to go here. And I want to share uh, one thing. Because I, I asked the question, like, if, if I trust in this, what sort of people does this make? What does this do in our souls? If, if I were to actually trust this, that God is going to be with me this week, how is my life going to be different? I want to just share a little bit from this guy, John Patton, who was a missionary to the New Hebrides. Uh, he served in tri the tribal lands, uh, islands, who, uh, the, the people that were cannibals. And he's, it's one of the most fascinating, adventure-filled uh, biographies to read. Uh, the beginning is slow, uh, but he's, he's in constant, constant danger from these people. So they'd gather around his house and they'd, with uh, axes and stuff and tell him to come out because they're going to kill him. And he'd, he'd just stand out and he'd be like, what are you, you people are bad people. I'm being so nice to you. You're bad. And they'd be like, yeah, you're right. And they'd walk away. And uh, it's just on and on it goes. But one, one day, uh, he says this. He says, a wild chief followed me around for four hours with a loaded musket. A gun. For four hours he follows him around, and though it was often directed right towards me, God restrained his hand. I spoke kindly to him, and I went about my work as if he had not been there, because I was fully persuaded that my God had placed me there and would protect me until the allotted task was finished. Looking up in unceasing prayer to our dear Lord Jesus, I left all in his hands, and I felt immortal till my work was done. I love that line. I felt immortal till my work was done. Trials and hairbreadth escapes strengthened my faith and seemed only to nerve me for more to follow. And they did tread swiftly upon each, other, each other's heels. Without the abiding, here's, here's the line here, without the abiding consciousness of the presence and power of my dear Lord and Savior, nothing else in all the world could have preserved me from losing my reason and perishing miserably. But his words, lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world, became so real that it would not have startled me to behold him, just as Stephen did, gazing down upon him in that scene. What would, what would life be like this week for you if you really felt and knew God was going to be with you? Think, think how many uh, anxieties might shrink. Think how many less times you might grumble about the world. Think how many times, less times you might feel like you have to defend yourself. 
God promises to be with his people. You, weak little you. To be with you, not watching you from afar. It's Almighty God, the one that holds the very universe in his hands. And he says, I will be with you. Not, I hope to, if I can make it, I will be with you. And how do we know that's true? How do we know that's just not fun language to talk about? It's because Christ has paid the ultimate sacrifice. And he was forsaken by God so that we never would be. If you're here today and a follower of Christ, I invite you to the table. We we recall that we for sure know that God is with us because Christ was forsaken on our behalf. The table is for all those who profess faith in Christ, not that you are uh, perfect. Uh, It's not about perfection, but about direction. If you're here today and strive to walk with Jesus, the table is open to you and we invite you to come. If you're here today and you are not walking with Jesus, uh, we ask you not to participate in the table. So please come, grab the elements, come on the inside portion of the aisle, and then go to the outside portion of the aisle, grab the elements, and then we'll partake together. Brothers and sisters, because of the death of Christ on your behalf, God is with you. It's not because of your, the strength of your faith, not because of your courage, not because of your wisdom, but it's because of Christ was forsaken on your behalf. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, He took bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it, saying, This is my body, broken for you. One day we'll see him face to face, will we not? We experience him now, he is with us, but then we shall see him face to face. We will be in his presence forever. And we look to that day. Until then, we know and we hang on the promise that, lo, I am with you always. Let us go in faith this week, trusting in the promise. The Lord Jesus took the cup after supper in the same way, saying, This cup, it is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me.